You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week we go inside the huddle with conductor Gil Rose, founder of Odyssey Opera and the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. The company's just completed the second run of Corleano's Lord of Cries and are preparing to give the East Coast premiere of the Oliver Sacks opera, Awakenings. And then, in the listener mailbag, a field report on the American Opera Initiative. Plus, in the two-minute drill, who blinked in the game of opera chicken between ENO and Arts Council England? Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow. On Apple Podcasts, you can hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And I've got a hot take right now, and it's that I'm glad to see Oliver Camacho back from France. Oliver, how's it going? Well, Paris is a little leitmotif in the first section of this show. I, I believe, but um, before we talk about my trip to France, we don't have to talk about my trip to France. Um, <laughs> op- opera, He's going to bring out the opera- slideshow, you know, give us the, the game of opera chicken. I feel like it's more of a game of like money chicken or a game of like uh, budget chicken <laughs> than opera chicken. I don't know. I feel like you could get a really solid like Queen of the Night style aria out of a chicken clucking. You know, I think it'd be pretty good. You know, uh, mm. that's my artistic take mm. on it. Uh, <laughs> Ashley Hargrave, how's it going? You know, it's going okay on a lot of levels. Um, uh, my cell phone's going off, and it is a number I don't recognize, so I'm going to ignore it. Um, so I'm doing great. Uh, I will tell you, um, George brought something to my attention. Um, there was a little article on yourbasin.com that talked about uh, the Detroit Pistons and the Chicago Bulls traveled overseas to play a game in Paris. Uh, and while they were there, they did a lot of sightseeing, and apparently both of the teams went to do a private tour and a concert at the Paris Opera. And this whole article oh. was about how they were wowed and there was this really warm and fuzzy feel-good part where one of the coach's wives was supposed to go 25 years ago when she was in college and her ticket got canceled so this was so much better and they they kept talking about how the players were just so enamored with the opera houses and with the operas themselves and I just want to gently remind both the Detroit Pistons and the Chicago Bulls if if you like that <laughs> boy are you going to like what's in your backyard because uh, there's a there's a there's a whole opera house and company both <laughs> fabulous in your literal backyards. So I just want to want to recommend that to our to our folks when they get back home. And you know if you're if you're looking for any podcasts while you're at it, we, we there 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 might be one we could suggest maybe you know uh, I've that got does a couple sports ideas. Sports and opera and opera. That's hmm. weird. Who would do that? They're not run the same at all. <laughs> uh, I just want to uh, offer a. Um, do you call it a retraction or like a correction from last oh. week? Uh, when George is reading the story about the Isabel Leonard starring in a movie, okay. uh, I, I thought he said Jennifer Coolidge, and I thought he like mispronounced Jennifer Coolidge's name as Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, totally different person. Yeah, totally different person. Joanna Coolidge, but he did say Anna Hathaway, and I was shocked that, <laughs> that nobody corrected him. Maybe just you feel that he's too powerful. He's like the... The patriarch of the show, and you cannot. We go live against in fear. Oh, yeah, yeah. We live in fear. We, we, we can't correct opera, Daddy. Let's talk some opera. 
Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Gil Rose is founder and conductor of the Boston Modern Opera Project and also the founder and general artistic director of Odyssey Opera. He has many other credits to his name, but now he can add finally the credit of Inside the Huddle guest on Opera Box Score. Before we talk to Gil, here's a little bit of music from his uh, Grammy-winning recording of Tobias Picker's Fantastic Mr. Fox. What has become of me? What am I now? My beautiful tail so bushy and tall. The pride of my family, the envy of all. The finest tail for miles around. Lies lifeless, lonely on the ground. A ridiculous brush. And I, a shadow of Von no more. Fabulous fox that I was before No longer to leave my deep warm home No longer the forest paths to roam The object alone of derision and mirth Condemned evermore to hide in the earth The shadow of form a ghost no more Of the fox that I was before oh, 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 oh. What has become of me? What am I now? From the Odyssey Opera Grammy-winning recording of Tobias Picker's Fantastic Mr. Fox. We heard a little bit of John Brancy in that show, conducted by Odyssey Opera's founder and artistic director, Gil Rose, who is our guest today on Opera Box Go. Welcome. Glad to be here. We're so excited to talk to you. And um, people can go to the odysseyopera.org website to learn more about the company and to see its history uh, beginning in 2013 with a bizarro season of Rienzi, <laughs> Un Giorno di Regno, everybody's favorite first operas. <laughs> well, I mean, I was I was actually there accidentally. I very briefly, oh, wow. very briefly lived in Boston and I was literally out walking uh, and saw and saw um, uh, the double bill, the the Verdi, uh, the the first Verdi comedy. I'm blanking on the name right now. Un giorno di regno. Yeah, un giorno di regno and the uh, Wolf Ferrari, which was not what I was expecting when I was just walking through uh, the back bay of Boston one evening. <laughs> I just hopped in there, and uh, I, I was so blown away when I looked at the program and found out that was the first season of a new opera company in Boston. Um, and I, I remember thinking, how did you get to this point, the, this <laughs> level of quality so quickly? Because I've seen many opera companies in their first you know, couple of seasons. And believe me, they're not all hitting with such a bold season that's so well done and well put together and well thought out. Well, we'll, re we'll rehash <laughs> some of these seasons. But yeah, why, Gil, why don't you tell us about just uh, daring to start with uh, this type of repertoire. Yeah, well, uh, oh my gosh. Well, uh, I had run a company here in Boston called Opera Boston for uh, 10 to 12 years. And, and then it met the fate of a lot of opera companies and folded. And then we sort of laid dormant for a while. But then, um, you know, as the Blues Brothers say, we're going to get the band back together. And we got <laughs> all the... All the people involved kind of up up and running again and we decided to do something well you know a newsworthy as it were and uh the idea of doing a, a complete performance of rienzi 
which I, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it possibly may have been, it was a concert performance, but it possibly may have been the the most complete performance of the opera since its premiere. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, it could be, I could be wrong about that, but it, to our best let's knowledge. Ju- let's just, performed- uh, George, let's just George effect. Santos the thing and say it was. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but we did it in, actually, we did it in two performances. We did uh, 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 Acts 1 and 2 and then took a dinner break and did Acts 3, 4, and 5. It was a whole day event. And it was a, you know, it was a, kind of a, a gauntlet we threw down a little bit. Like we are going to do things that nobody did and... Um, uh, devil may care uh we'll see what happens and come what may and then we did a little uh stage season with uh, verity's uh, only other comedy other than falstaff his second opera journey of the Renio, and then a double bill of uh, Mes- mescani's um zanetto and paired with wolf ferrari's uh this uh this secret of susanna the it's a great to susanna and then we were off, you know, that was it. We were, we were just going to do the things that nobody else did, but deserved to be done. The, mm-hmm. the, the premise was not just that they weren't done, but why weren't they done? Didn't why, we would do things that, that should be done, but we'd somehow gotten out of the pattern of doing them in our, in our opera and concert life. So that's where we've been ever since. So, uh, Listeners can go to odysseyopera.org and look at the past performances tab, but can you just sort of give us a, you know, shorthand of some of these seasons and some of the themes that you built seasons around? Well, we got into this idea of themes, which has sort of uh, been a a double-edged sword because it gives us a lot of uh, something to focus on. And at the same time, it, you know, hamstrings us greatly. <laughs> there, there have been seasons based on little mini seasons. We have these half seasons, like we did something called um, uh, Wild Opera Nights, which were all operas based on writings of Oscar Wilde. And, mm. uh, that included, I'm going to try to remember exactly. But it wasn't Salome. It was... Um, everything but Salome, you could have called everything it. Everything but Salome. Yeah, <laughs> it was... Um, um, the, the Zimlinski's Ditzberg, the dwarf, and um, great opera, uh, yeah, an amazing opera, actually, a really amazing opera. The importance um, of being earnest, the importance and... of being earnest, which was a discovery of Castellanueva Tedesco and uh, Lowell Lieberman's uh, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, and then we did Gilbert Sullivan's um, Patience. Patience, which is sort of not Oscar Wilde, but the character, the main character is based on Oscar Wilde. Mm. And and then we did a Joan of Arc season, uh, which was all operas based on Joan of Arc, including Tchaikovsky and Norman Del Gioio and Donizetti. So there's sort of this um, themology. Themology, is that a word? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Uh, It is now. (laughs) Driving us to look at, giving us a a vehicle for uh, exploring operas. I mean, I have a list, a running list on my laptop of like themes that just come to me about, you know, Herman Melville at the opera. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I have one called The Devil Made Me Do It, which is, uh, you know, operas that feature Mephistopheles as the main character. And mm. just the idea of co- trying to connect people to opera through a larger idea 
which is interrelational. So uh, these operas are obviously rarely, if ever, performed, especially in the U.S. Well, well, rarely are ever performed now. Some yeah. of them were very famous operas in their time. So uh, how do you how do you get your artists on board, and how do you how do you get the audience on board? Also, yeah, well, artists are 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 uh, that's tricky because, you know, like when we did Tchaikovsky's opera, The Maid of Orleans, which is was Tchaikovsky's attempt at a French grand opera, you know, with the Joan of Arc story. Uh, nobody had ever sang those parts before, or right. hardly ever anybody had sang those parts before. And they didn't have a lot of chances to sing it again afterwards. So they had to be motivated for basically a one-off. They had to learn the parts, perform them, and they weren't going to go to another performance six months later. So unlike the, you know, the, the daily fare of, of regional and, um, uh, extra regional size opera companies, they're not going to get to perform the same things over again. So you have to really like find the adventurous spirits, you know, in, mm. in, in the performers. And, uh, and audience is not so much a, a problem actually, because mm. if we've got a kind of loyal audience that is really ready to see what we serve up. That, that's always the thing that struck me when I was living in Boston for that very brief period of time. The classical music sees, uh, uh, sort of environment there is so unusual and diverse compared to cities of similar size, yeah. um, almost to the point where it's kind of a disadvantage if you're trying to be conventional. You know? um, and But I think one of the cool things that you do uh, outside of Odyssey Opera, you're also the founder of the Boston Modern Orchestra Project as well. And one of the cool things that I really like about BMOP is the fact that it is associated with a recording label, the BMOP Sound, which is great because I am very much the kind of person who gets a little frustrated sometimes with uh, with even opera companies, uh, orchestras that are doing this really adventurous stuff, but it goes out there live and is right. then never heard again. Right. But you have this whole label that I believe you're the executive producer of, correct me if I'm wrong there, of BMOP Sound. What is that like? What is that like? Uh, well, it's exactly, you You actually put your finger right on it, which is <laughs> why why resurrect, for example, why resurrect, resurrect um, Irving Fine's orchestral music if you're just going to play it for an audience of 600 people, mm. never again? Yeah. Why not record it and and play it to an audience which is the world, and also not just the world at this moment, but to document and and preserve these things so that that those things are there for future generations. Um, that's been really a guiding principle for BMOP with his own label, but also for Odyssey too. I mean, if, if, if opera wasn't so damn expensive, um, we'd probably <laughs> be doing, and we plan to do as much recording as we can, because I think that one of the things we've learned a little bit, we've been brought home by the pandemic and, um, you know, people, how their, their, their habits of consuming music have changed. Right. But, but if you're going to put the, the, the real money in, uh, to invest in these resurrections of these ideas and these projects best to preserve them as, as well you can, because they may not, those opportunities may not come again. And if they're going to have another chance in concert life or operatic life, they're going to need a reference, a recording for people to bounce off of, to, 
initiate and and motivate uh, future performances. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's God's work, as they say. (laughs) I just want to, uh, we're going to pivot to your current season, but I want to give you props on the 2018-19 season. There was a uh, there was two themes that year. There was uh, operas by Gounod, which Gounodacy, yeah, Gounod, yeah, the Gounodacy. <laughs> but uh, the theme that I'm so crazy about is the three operas about Helen of Troy. Right, vocally could not be more different. You have a you know pseudo baroque uh, Gluck opera. You have uh, a operetta, basically an operetta, an Offenbach, and then and Strauss, Richard, Richard Strauss's Egyptian Helena. You could not have a more disparate, you know, range of voice types. And I'm proud to say that many of your principals uh, have been guests on Opera Box Score. We've had oh, Mireille wow. Asselin. We've had Clay Hilly on. We've had Erica Schiller. Oh, wow, Clay. Wow, you got Clay before he got to be a big star. Yeah, we did. Um, so who does the casting? Because like, is it you that really knows these voices? Like, well, these it's different? a team, or- you know, it's a team. I, my art, artistic administrator, Linda Osborne, fields ideas. I usually put out the, you know, the the, the thing is like, for example, the Egyptian Helene, uh, nobody sang it because it, well, I don't know the last time it was performed <laughs> in North America. So there weren't a lot of people banging around. I'm sure, and, like Deborah Voigt. Yeah, exactly. But even some time ago. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, we put the we put the idea out, and uh, my team fields ideas and singers, and you know, we sort of a little bit of a dance that goes on from there, yeah. and we find people who are also you know right for the roles, but mm-hmm. then also are interested in in you know giving themselves over to something they may never sing again. Yeah. Megan Lindsay as Paride, no. chef's, chef's kissed casting. Yeah, chef's no, kiss. She's, no, no, she's no. so incredible and what a beautiful actress. Uh, yeah, I agree. No, Megan's great. So we are going to talk now about, uh, well, you just uh, recorded Lord of Cries, which uh, Lord of Cries now it has a forever tie to opera box score because it was uh, the first time that Santa Fe opera invited us to oh wow uh, yeah be over there and so we we had a first look at at Lord of Cries and now it's going on recording and and that is such a storied piece now with especially with um you know Catherine Henry this young artist that's a story is, that's a story yeah who is going to be a star because of her ability to sing this crazy <laughs> right. this crazy music right. So. right yeah and she jumped in like you know with great panache i yeah. i saw the production in santa fe and and she was a, a dream to work with here she just showed up low low fuss low muss uh, yeah you know, she just came and did her did her thing and knocked everybody out the whole time yeah <laughs> yeah she's just gonna be a star so that's recording that's coming out soon and summer, um summer yeah if, if i keep on schedule and now uh we are or you're in the middle of preparing uh the oliver Sacks opera yeah right. um awakenings uh can you tell us about that we I started think. rehearsal tonight with the chorus i wasn't there but the chorus master started rehearsal tonight um, um yeah it's it's a typical odyssey uh, thing an opera that needed a second we're very good at seconds you know right we we we, we, 
we we have a we're, we're working we have our first commission going actually now so that'll be our oh, first. really yeah we can talk about that i guess it's a oh yeah fun. whatever you want to tell us about a commission i'm yeah. always about the new works but as far as the seconds go i mean we're you know that happens a lot both in the opera and the concert world pieces get some energy somebody commissions them there's a big effort and there's a whole lot of um energy put forward and the thing happens and that's it i mean the, the, <laughs> yeah. the ground is littered with with major pieces uh, i just had some email with a publisher not an hour ago or an hour and a half ago about a piece that had been done at santa fe uh I don't know, 35 years, 40 years ago. Man, I don't know what how many years ago that, you know, had its moment. It was a big deal at the time. And then it it died, died, literally died. Yeah. Nothing gets a second production these days. So. Yeah, right. So we've tried to fill in that role uh in a lot of ways. And Lord of Cries was sort of that way. Um, you know, it was a chance to to do it, uh, make a recording, which will hopefully be the impetus for more productions down the line. And um even though it's impossible to sing. <laughs> impossible to sing. Uh, not so impossible to play. Yeah. Uh, possible to stage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but that doesn't mean it. You know, it's funny about Lord of Cries. I mean, having gone through the experience, um, it, it really does really work well, well as a concert. Um, in some ways, maybe a little bit better than as a production. I guess I should be careful what I say. Um <laughs> Well, because in the music, the narrative is really evident. And I think unless it's the production is really keyed in on the musical temporal narrative that's that's very clear to to see in the in the scoring, um, it can, that can get lost. And in a concert mm -hmm. production, you just have the music. So you follow the narrative yeah. um, through your ears as opposed to your eyes, which can deceive you. And even better for recording so that these singers can take a break yeah. between. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It doesn't happen in nature, really, logically. Yeah. And um, yeah, you can you can time it out in, in recording uh, in, a, in a way that's not possible in reality. Um, but um, but Awakenings is sort of similar to that. I mean, it had its premiere last June and uh, Tobias is an old friend of mine and uh, we just had a a chance to to remount it uh, a month from now a month oh god geez a month from now um <laughs> a month from now and uh and we'll we'll do it and then we'll record it same kind of recipe in a way so ultimately we'll see if it gets a get some traction in the future i think after like like many of these productions after the first outing they there's a lot of buzz and the new york times does a review and whatever and then companies get very involved in their own agendas and they they don't pick they though they might be interested they don't they don't jump in because the incentives are for the premiere not for the subsequent performances exactly yeah. yeah i always think that uh going forward with um premieres these companies need to be mindful of where these things will actually live yeah. Yeah. and i think the hours is going to be a hit because oh, um, but, but it's got to go somewhere though the conservatories because of all yeah. the women roles you know that's that's no, what we need point. we need operas that have a lot of women in them so. yeah no, no, that's a good point that's yeah. actually a really good point actually 
But anyway, another uh, Chef's Kiss casting for uh, Odyssey Opera. You have Joyce L. Corey. Oh my uh, God, I can't wait. Yeah, who is <laughs> such a thrilling performer. And uh, Alex Morstein, uh, who I thought was living in like Berlin or Vienna or somewhere in you know German speaking world. Um, he's actually local. He went to Northwestern. We're, we're mm, recording here okay. in Chicago. So um, we know his voice very well. We're, it's great to see him getting work and that guy can sing high. Well, good. That's good because he's got some high things to sing. So. <laughs> convenient. Yeah. No, I think it's a nice cast, uh, and and it'll it'll record well too. Uh, so yeah, we're right in the throes of it. Well, uh, Gil Rose, uh, we're thrilled to have a, had a chance to meet you and to let our audiences know about what's happening. Very exciting uh, in Boston. Uh, which we always think of as an oratorio town. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! So I get to t- I get to tell you about our our, our commission because it has to do with that that comment about. I often say I'm often uh, asked way too many times why isn't Boston an opera town, and that's a complicated issue and a complicated story involving big characters and big movements. And Peter Sellers and others, and the Baroque movement, the early stages of the Baroque revival, and and uh, Emmanuel music, and and it also involves a, a character named Sarah Caldwell, who was uh, really a woman forty years, fifty years ahead of her time, uh, who ran the Opera Company of Boston, and um, Sarah was. Uh, only I, I I I don't know if this is the right expression, but only Mark Twain could have invented Sarah Caldwell. <laughs> um, she was an American personality of like epic proportions. She was the first woman to um, conduct the New York Philharmonic, or the second woman to conduct the New York Philharmonic, mm. the first woman to conduct the Metropolitan Opera, and she was on the cover of Time Magazine. And she was this larger than life opera impresario who discovered Shirley Verrett and John Vickers and Domingo and. Mm all these other characters. And she was also one of the most um, uh, paradoxical uh, characters in producing opera. She was a total charlatan, one, one, one step ahead of the IRS. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a, a colleague of Imelda Marcos and was burned in effigy on the Boston Common and was also 400 pounds in weight and a narcoleptic. And one of these amazing characters that you, and we've commissioned an opera about her time from the mid fifties to the early eighties, where she ran the opera company of Boston, which was, oh, that's going to be great. <laughs> major opera destination. And Jamie Barton will be in the opera as Sarah Caldwell. So, oh. oh, wow. That's so going to be amazing. It's big, yeah. It's a big story. You, you uh, heard it here. It's okay. If we, put this yeah. on our podcast okay yeah. great <laughs> yeah we finally we have finally have a scoop, <laughs> oh, no. it's a scoop. Yeah, it's a scoop. but uh sarah was um you know this amazing person who rose from their with their incredible gifts and their tragic flaws brought them <laughs> deep down to a very bad end uh and you know there's it's it's a sublime to the ridiculous kind of story and uh it's a it's an opera story it's about producing opera and the will to produce opera against all odds. And mm-hmm. uh, so we're pretty excited. Um, and Mark Adamo is the composer and librettist. Oh, that's going to be nice. Good. Nice friend of the show. 
Well, when they make uh, an opera about opera box score, um, I, I will accept. <laughs> I will accept Javier Camarena. Yeah, as... right. You have to like do your casting. Who's going to play you? Right. <laughs> That's not bad. That's a good choice. Yeah. Uh, we always like to, um, you know, try to tie in, uh, you know, sports with uh, with opera. I don't know if you have any thing you'd like to say about uh, Boston sports. <laughs> Or oh wow, that's a setup. Yeah, that's an amazing setup. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wouldn't watch a Patriots game if it was happening across the street from my. House. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I always say as a Steelers fan, when I see meet Patriots fan, I always say, you know what our motto is: six rings, no cheating. <laughs> we should have had Matt on this show. Yeah, I'm sure that'll make that'll make sense to somebody. Matt who? <laughs> No, we have a, a Pittsburgh native uh, who's our co-host, but he's not feeling well today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, if you're not a Steelers fan where I was raised, you get sent out and be, you have to be raised by wolves. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get the same thing. I'm from Alabama originally. So uh, if, if it isn't tied football, I like I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember as a kid, um, a program and uh, uh, you know, I must have been a teenager or something going to the Pittsburgh Symphony and the 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 sports fan you know the rabid sports fans were so thing uh, such a big thing that in the symphony program there was a i don't know if it was an ad or what it was but the title of it was what's the score and it would be like an excerpt from an orchestra score and then that was question one and then question two was 27 to 19 Oh, well, that was the first time the Steelers beat the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. And then the third thing was another orchestra score an excerpt. And then the other one was, you know, a, a, a famous, uh, you know, when Mazeroski hit the home run in 1960. There was a series of sports scores and orchestral scores. And you had to guess, you had to be able to answer both. Hmm. So that's what I thought I was getting into tonight. Yeah, that, that could be that could be a fun game for a future episode. Yeah, you should do it. What's the score? What's the score? We'll, we'll get you back on to host that segment. I, I'd love to. That'd be a lot of fun. Thanks for Because you're not busy me. at all. <laughs> Tobias Picker's Awakenings is a one-night-only performance, February 25th at the Huntington Avenue Theater in Boston. So when uh, when uh, George is away and I'm in charge, uh, I have to like consult my notes here. So let me just do a little a little. Uh, uh, okay, does anyone know anything about sports for this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the first Grand Slam of the year has begun in uh, Australia, the uh, the Australian Open in Melbourne, oh. and uh, the women's. Uh, Tournament is already upended because the number one seed Iga Sviantic was eliminated, and Iga. yeah, Iga, yeah, and uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed that Jessica Pagula, uh, the number three seed, who actually um, I think her father might be an owner of the team that Damar Hamlin uh, belongs to. Oh, the Bills, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's like some tie to other sports, <laughs> but um, I'm obviously interested in the men's draw, and uh, Nadal is out, Casper uh, Rune is Casper uh, Rude is out, Holger Rune is out. Uh, it looks like Djokovic is going to take this one. And remember that last year he was disqualified because he's yeah. not COVID vaccinated. He is playing like a beast. He looks so hungry and angered. I know that he's gonna like win this thing, <laughs> and then like pee in the trophy or something like that he's like so <laughs> angry about this whole thing so, yeah um so yeah that's my prediction holger i mean uh, um uh that Djokovic will win in the end and uh, who knows what's gonna happen on the women's side 
All we know is that someone's going to pee in the trophy. That's true. <laughs> and whoever is associated with the Buffalo Bills, they have lots of extra time because the Bills got knocked out of playoff contention yesterday. Uh, we are down to four teams left in the NFL playoffs until the Super Bowl. So we're going to have uh, the Bengals, the Chiefs, the Bengals play the Chiefs, and then the 49ers will play the Eagles. Uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, for the record, this is the first time they have gone to the AFC championship playoff two years in a row for the first time in franchise history. And that is all because of America's heartthrob, my boyfriend, the love of my life, Joe Burrow. Have we talked about how hot Joe Burrow is? (laughs) Have you seen... Oliver, Oliver, focus. Have you seen a photo of Joe Burrow? Do you know how hot this man is? I'm gonna look it up right now. Let me see. Here we go. We're gonna get our live reaction right okay. now. Oliver is Googling. He is opening the window. Oh. He said, oh, in a very suggestive way. Do you see? Do you do, have you seen the light? Have you seen what our Lord and yes. Savior has blessed us with? So Thank everything you, is Father so God. square. Every, there's so much jaw and chin and his jaw could yeah. cut glass and yeah. my face yeah. uh, as much as he wants. But um don't worry, friends, even though national football football league is about to be over fear not the usfl the other football league is going to start up in april uh there is no chicago franchise the closest thing to us is going to be the michigan panthers that play out of detroit so if anybody's up for a road trip for some spring football we can do that that sounds like a plan to me uh i'll leave you two and your your collective (laughs) husband to it uh let's take a look in this bag here oh what's this (gasps) a letter from a listener it's listener mailbag I ain't got something to say. Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is listener mailbag. It's so great that uh, our audience is engaged with us and it gives us content. (laughs) (laughs) It really is about mooching off of you guys. We really do appreciate it, which is why we send you payment in form of uh, uh, beer coasters and lapel pins. pins. So make sure you uh, you let us know. Operaboxscore.gmail.com is uh, where you want to send all your content that we can shamelessly reuse (laughs) so we're getting a field report on uh the kennedy center slash like i'm gonna say washington national operas yes uh american opera initiative uh the mentors this season are um librettist kelly rourke uh filmmaker kimberly reed uh composer carlos simon and washington national opera principal conductor evan rogester uh, and I imagine that Francesca Zambello has also her something to do with all of this. The three, <laughs> the three shows that were on offer were um, Oshun, uh, music by uh, B. E. Boykin with libretto by Jared Lee, uh, a work called Bubby and the Demon with music by Jens Ibsen and libretto by Cecilia Raker, and uh, What the Spirits Show, music by Cillen Wellington and libretto by Walken Schweigert. And I imagine that this also involved the uh, Caffert's, no longer Caffert's Domingo, young artists and all of this. <laughs> so that is the um, festival initiative that we are going to hear about from... Our friend Woody in the District of Columbia, and he writes to us, Hi, OBS. Here's an update from D.C. WNO this weekend held their events for American Opera Initiative, AOI, which included three 20-minute operas this year. Francesca Zambello and WNO continue supporting new work. They match composer librettist teams with mentor composers and mentor librettists and talk about diverse voices. All six composers and librettists of the three shows this year are Black or LGBTQ+. Oh, we love to hear it. 
uh, Woody Saw Bubby and the Demon by composer Jens Ibsen and the libretto by uh, Cecilia Raker. Ibsen described the music as being influenced by Mahler and heavy metal, which sounds like sure. something yeah. I would listen to. Uh, <laughs> sure. Here's how the program described it. Uh, Booby has filled the void of COVID isolation by solving as many wor- word searches as possible until her latest puzzle turns out to be a cursed summoning incantation that conjures a demon from the netherworld. Uh, and uh, Woody says, question, can opera be fun, but can it be a little zany? Answer, I'm glad to say yes. My high schooler and I left the theater smiling. That sounds absolutely delightful. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, Woody also uh, went to the musical play Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson with, Dawson with the great Denise Graves in the title role. Which is he not said, the AOI festival or initiative. Right, it's yes. it's separate. So, yeah. Separate. Um, but he said he had a great weekend in D.C., uh, and thank you so much, Woody, for writing in. We love getting in these kind of field reports, hearing why, what you guys are listening to, what your reactions are, and your opinions on any range of topics. Once again, our email is operaboxscore at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Woody for sending in your work. Don't be shy. We know that PJ has very high production value on his voice <laughs> memos, but you could send us a regular old voice memo with you know your... Whatever cell phone you have, uh, we we might be able to air that too. Um, so we'd I'll love to hear your voices. I'll work my magic to make it yeah, sound really nice. I'll like exactly. boost the bass way up, make it uh, boom through the audience. It'll be great. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. English National Opera has been given a one-year reprieve by the Arts Council England to the tune of £11.5 million. The reinstated funding would allow ENO to keep staging shows at the Coliseum as they plan for a new base outside London by 2026. ENO, nevertheless, is postponing a number of new productions, including the co-production of Wagner's Ring Cycle with the Met. Coming this March, it's Blanchella! Lincoln Center will will create a festival dedicated to the works of Terence Blanchard entitled See Me As I Am, featuring presentations by all of the arts campuses organizations, except for the ballet for some reason. Said Blanchard, I'm overjoyed at the idea of bringing all my musical experiences together to make one statement about the importance of human connection. We almost went with Blanchapalooza, but uh, we (laughs) ended up with Blanchella. No uh, Blanchard by Blanche West or anything like that. (laughs) Uh, The Paris Opera has organized a fundraiser to balance the budget for the first time in its history. Friends of the Paris Opera has partnered with Sotheby's to sell 75 lots, including a couture experience from Chanel, a Rolex with an estimated value of $16,000 to $32,000, and a silver tiara linked to Queen Victoria. Notabene, I don't think Sotheby's takes Venmo. In an article in the Irish Times, soprano Danielle Denise comments, there's no reason why cliche should follow opera. The fad lady sings, the Viking helmet, the cartoon impressions about it. Nobody in the world of opera is perpetuating any of them anymore, so why are they still lurking in the background? Opera is so much more dynamic than that. Every single one of us who gets out in front of the public and promotes it does their bit to blast those cliches to smithereens. Yum, smithereens. (laughs) I love smithereens. (laughs) 
<laughs> Delicious. Teatro a la Scala is the latest company to build a streaming platform. La Scala.tv will launch on February 14th with the performance of Ivespri Siciliani, conducted by Fabio Luisi. The perfect way to celebrate Valentine's Day with your Verdi completist lover. Crunching the numbers, data released from the Met shows that the audiences are getting younger, with the average age of a Met opera attendee now being 52, down <laughs> from an average age of... Hey... That's not funny. Down from an average age, that's young. Down from an average age of 57 just two years ago. Younger attendees, however, are buying fewer season tickets and are less interested in standard repertoire, preferring works by living composers over the classics. In trade news, Opera Omaha has announced its new general director, the 19th in the company's history. Allison Swenson will take over for Roger Weitz. Swenson previously served as the director of development at the Santa Fe Opera. San Diego Opera has announced the appointment of Melody Moore as its artistic administrator. The soprano will serve as an advisor to general director David Bennett in casting decisions. On the disabled list, Lisa Lindstrom has canceled her participation in Dresden's Ring Cycle. To my dear fans, friends, and family, I am disappointed to not be bringing my Brunhilde to you, said Lindstrom on Instagram. German soprano Ricarda Merbet will assume the role. The Nemet has announced a cast change for its upcoming revival of Bohème. Sopranos Sylvia Duramo and Leah Hopkins will sing Hawkins, excuse me, will sing Musetta, replacing Christina Mictarian. And on this day, January 23rd in 1639, Francesco Cavalli joined St. Mark's in Venice as organist. In 1789, it was the birth of tenor and pedagogue Giulio Marco Bordogni. Some of you might have his book of vocalises. In 1841, American contralto Antoinette Sterling was born. She studied with Pauline Viardot and Manuel Garcia, and Arthur Sullivan wrote The Lost Chord for her. In 1930, it was the birth of Wagnerian bass Manfred Schenk. Happy birthday to John Luther Adams the environmentalist composer, not to be confused with John Adams, whom we assume doesn't <laughs> sort his recyclables. John Luther Adams hasn't really written any operas except for I-L-I-M-A-Q, a drum kit opera performed by Glenn Kotchke. By the way, John Luther Adams was born this day in 1953. Happy birthday to a real American opera composer, Mason Bates, born this day in 1977. And on January 23rd, 1999, three women, based on excerpts from three historical operas by Thea Musgrave, had its premiere in San Francisco. And that is your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of Zihat Michni Geliebt or Ella Jamai Mamo from Don Carlos. That was bass, uh, root, what's his name? <laughs> uh, Manfred Schenk, uh, <laughs> with the, uh, Gelsenkirchen State Orchestra led by Lubmo, Lubomir, Lubomir Romanski. You're getting it. Yes. Yeah, you got it. First try. <laughs> I have no retakes. <laughs> 
I'm a pro, people. I'm a pro. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of things, I just want to recommend that everybody go look up this Irish Times article from Danielle Denise or about Danielle Denise, because not because of anything that she says, which is all just fine because she's Danny Denise, whatever. She she rules that repertoire. <laughs> it's because of the videos that are embedded in the article. So she was a child star. I don't know if you guys know this. So she was on an Australian television show called Young Talent Time, and they have a video of her singing Tomorrow, the theme song from Annie, in 1988. So back when she was like using wow. her chest voice. Um, and then what that does is it takes you on a YouTube rabbit hole, and it gets you to an amazing Christian television ad from Australia, <laughs> where she's singing about having pockets, and then they cut to the pockets, and the pockets have embroidery, and it's about Jesus. Um, there's a mouse at the end of the commercial. Nobody knows what's going wow. on. The point is, those are the reasons that you go and look at that article, not for anything else. <laughs> now let's talk about Eno and the Met and what this means for like the greater <laughs> opera canon of the world. Well, I think that this is uh, obviously, you know, uh, Arts Council England is backing down a little bit. They're saying, we're not going to chop your head off today. Maybe tomorrow. We'll see. Because um, uh, this, is, this is obviously an interesting development. I will say, I, I want to point this out here. The, when we were talking about the, uh, the, the sort of the ring cycle uh, postponement at the Met because of the E&O funding uh, cut, that story broke right before the, um, this 11.5 million pound cash infusion that uh, E&O is apparently going to get. So who knows if that will turn it around. However, I do think that it's an interesting opportunity to sort of think about how interconnected a lot of these bigger companies, uh, all, these national companies uh, around the world are, because you really see very clearly how national politics can really disrupt the overall international ecosystem. This is something we we're talking about with Bre Brexit, especially now that it's more difficult to get international singers in and out of England. And um, and now possibly the the ring cycle is going to be on the chopping block as well. I, I think that there's a lot to be said about the consequences of this, um, not just for England, but for places outside of England as well. So the uh, Met is losing their um, ring in 2025, which was to be uh, a collab or oh, 2026, 27. I, I think it's 2026. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, they, the one of the articles had something weird where they were going to do like part of it in twenty five, and then they were going to go into the full cycle with E and O in twenty six. So I don't know if that means that uh, they're going to use the old production, the the, the machine, but um, we know that that we thought that <laughs> I, that was going to be recycled. That thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's it's a, a large amount of money that, that they are now going to get. But I, I don't know if it's going to because the Met had to reinforce the whole stage for the machine. Honestly, so I don't think anybody would be mad if the Otto Shank production came out for a ring cycle at this point. You know, it's like, <laughs> let's just let's just have the damn thing for God's sake. You know, well, um, it's just this reminder of like, you know, when you. You plan a vacation with your friends. Everybody's supposed to go to Bora Bora. Everybody's put in the cash. You've set the times. Everybody's supposed to go. And everybody's participation is contingent on everybody else's participation. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, one of your friends, like, can't go because you broke with her boyfriend and she's sad or whatever. Like, her daddy's not paying her credit card anymore. And then all of a sudden, nobody can go to Bora Bora anymore. That's how this feels. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never been to Bora Bora, but and I also don't know if I know anyone that can afford to go. But the point is, that's my analogy. I like how the ENO was both the the dad's credit card and the uh, bad boyfriend in that metaphor. (laughs) Uh, maybe I think, I think the point is just get older and have more money when you want to go on vacation <laughs> and don't rely on your friends uh, to do things anymore. That's how I feel. I mean, like I just came back from a vacation and um, my dear, dear friend uh, wanted me to sleep in his apartment. That's what his way of like treating me. It's like when I saw the apartment, it's like, okay. I'm too old for this shit. I'm gonna get my hotel. <laughs> I'm gonna get a. I'm yeah, getting a hotel I'm, room. <laughs> I'm gonna stage the ring myself. Thanks. Yeah. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna go do it over here. Well, maybe they should consider doing what Paris Opera is doing yeah. and uh, organize oh, a no, I, have a, I, have a, I have a better seg. I have a better seg. Oh, oh okay. Uh, hit me, hit me, hit me. Speaking of being too old, um, 52 is not old. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, You're right. You know, it's not. It's not. We, We'd be so happy at my other job if our average age listener uh, was 52. <laughs> right true. now, we're we're like, ooh, 67. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We've made it. Young kids. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think you guys talked about this in, to a certain extent last week. But um, the desire for new works, uh, living composers, new stories uh, does come from the average age being not yeah. 80 years yeah. old, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so that's, is, that's progress. Yeah. It, it's been something, you know, we've been, I mean, my entire life, you know, it's been, you know, uh, a discussion about how to get these audience ages younger. And, you know, I, I think that's how, how to do it. You know, we, we talked about it extensively, I think with the Met, I am, I am honestly like I did, I did snort a little bit at, at the 52, um, but, 52 you're right is not old like that is that is by any any definition that is uh, still not a not as young as me you know spry and youthful as i am but <laughs> it is chicken over there uh but like you know it, it's kind of nice to know that i am not solely um bringing down the age average in uh in major opera companies just by, just by myself anyway. Um, well, and one thing to think about with this is that, the, you know, our our ideas of what age looks like in the cultural zeitgeist are shifting. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, this age is going down, but also the idea of what each of these ages mean looks very different than it did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, certainly Absolutely. 20 years ago. So 52 now, yeah, you're right. It's, it's not that old. You know, some of us that have seen people that turned 52 you know in our childhoods we thought it was like this older age but you know nutrition's better healthcare is better people are living a lot longer so the idea of this age coming down these people are in fact younger and in many cases healthier uh than their predecessors were from a couple of yeah. decades ago it is genuinely really exciting to see you know hopeful news from from the Met, um, and I, I don't want to talk about it too much because we, we mentioned awesome. it a lot last week, but uh, just like the the idea of having new stuff, relevant stuff with younger audiences, you know, it's the stuff we've been scream, screaming about since the beginning of time. Apparently, Danielle Denise has also been screaming about it. Uh, and we're <laughs> Belting. Since 1988. <laughs> Belting about it. <laughs> we are absolutely ready for a change, and I'm glad that, you know, the most venerable of our American opera companies is finally getting on board. Let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That's how we end every show. 
let's start with uh, Ashley today. What's your what's your call for me? It's actually neither good nor bad. It's a it's a sad call. Um, we mm. lost a musical icon in her own right, uh, Lisa Marie Presley, who is the you know daughter of the literal king. Uh, and I don't know if you guys got a chance to see any of the coverage of her uh, of her memorial service at Graceland, um, but it was really beautiful and it was amazing to see all of these different icons of music come together to celebrate her life and her artistry and the role mm. that she plays in modern American musical history. Um, and for the folks that are left in that family, you just can't help but have your heart break for them. She just became a grandmother before she passed away. And of course, Priscilla is kind of the last one standing of the group. So I just, I want to, I want to hug the whole Presley family in my heart mm. this week. Oliver Camacho. Well, the first few weeks of January are always sort of like a desert for culture, but you get to the end of January, the beginning of February, and man, there is just too much to do. In Chicago alone, over the coming week, you can see uh, Dame Jane Glover conducting Albert Herring with an incredible local mm. cast. Yeah, it's going to be uh, good. Hansel and Gretel will open up uh, by the time you hear this show. Um, at Lyric Opera Chicago while they are getting ready to, to mount Will Liverman's The Factotum. And next Tuesday uh, in Chicago, January 31st, Juan Diego Flores makes uh, his long-awaited return to Chicago. It's been, what, 17 years since he's last been here. Uh, he's going to give a recital with pianist uh, Vincenzo Scalera. And uh, one of your favorite OBS hosts will be giving the pre-concert lecture at that recital. So check it I'm out. I'm so excited to see George Cedarquist up there. <laughs> talking, <laughs> talking about Handel operas, yeah. <laughs> we should ask him, next time we see George, can you name four Rossini operas? <laughs> uh, my good call is related to having uh, Gil Rose on the podcast. I actually made a TikTok, which has gone mega viral. Almost 200 people have seen it as of the recording of this episode. Mega. Uh, and it was actually a recording of, uh, it was a, actually a joke about, um, you know, uh, show this piece to the person who says they only don't listen to, cl uh, don't listen to, uh, country music and rap. And I, uh, and I used a clip from, uh, from the original version of George Anthile's, um, uh, 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 oh gosh, really funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, the George Anthile's, uh, um, Oh, God, I'm completely blanking on the name. Uh, but to all that to say, it's from a recording that Gil Rose conducted. I didn't realize it. Oh, really? Until, I didn't know what that yeah, was. That's awesome. Boston Modern Opera Project. Uh, it's a great recording. It's got his jazz his jazz uh, suite on the, on the other part of that recording. Check it out. If I remember what it's called, I will edit it in here. Ballet Mechanique. Or make George <laughs> put it on the site. It's great. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to the stuff we've talked about on our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. I'm your audio editor, Weston Williams, and for our co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, and guest, Gil Rose, 
I'm once again Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you prepare to set sail on a gunodacy. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with soprano Carrie-Anne Otanio, Opera Delaware's VP of Engagement. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more silver tiaras. <laughs> Join us.